UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to another Life Issues. Now, if you were told someone you love was developing dementia, how might you feel about it? If it was you that was told, how scared might you be because of it? Over the years, we have talked about dementia on life issues. We've explored the subject, we've explored the impact, and we've explored the developing understanding that society has about dementia. But I tell you this honestly, without fear of contradiction, I have never in all those years come across such a helpful, informative, and practical insight into the lot of those who are living with dementia and their carers face as the website of my guest today. The website is gloriousopportunity.org. That's gloriousopportunity.org. And the author of it and a host of resources and books is Dr. Jennifer Butte. It's no surprise that Jennifer has insight into dementia because not only was she a GP and trained to understand what people faced, but she also has dementia herself and shares from a perspective of living with and in the disease. Jennifer, welcome to Life Issues. Thank you. I wonder if we might start with a bit of your story because obviously dementia was something that you were aware of. Your father had dementia. You also had your medical training. How did you know for yourself, that something was wrong, that it was more than just getting older? Well, it started with my forgetting the passwords. I was the senior partner in a very large practice and had full security clearance with passwords, that some of which changed weekly, some monthly and some quarterly, and I got completely lost. And I realised that wasn't normal for me. <laughs> And then the next thing that happened was I got lost. I can still remember the first time I couldn't find my way to the surgery where I'd been working for 25 years. I looked at a map and it didn't make sense. Mm. I couldn't believe it. And when I eventually arrived very late, and Dr. Butte was never late, they just laughed at me. And then going home, I got to some traffic lights and I didn't know whether to go right or left. So I phoned up my husband who loved me dearly and he told me not to be so stupid. <laughs> so I just bought a sat nav, didn't I? Yes. You know, and get, got on with it. But then the last thing that really made me realize that it was serious was I was chairing a very large case conference as the senior partner. We had social services, police, nurses, clients, all kinds of people there, about 20 people. And I'm a friendly person, so I welcomed everyone and said how nice it was to see them all. And I said, we need some introductions because I don't know any of you. So I turned to the person on my right and I said, could you start by introducing you? Because I've never met you before. Oh, don't be so stupid, Jennifer. We've worked together for 25 years. Yes. And so it went round. I didn't know a single person in that room. So that was when I decided I needed to resign um, so I had to then get a diagnosis, didn't I? But I knew, I knew. 
And as you say, the experience of your dad's developing of the condition, your medical training gave you insight. You were aware of of what was happening to you. Also aware of the likely progression that this illness would take. How how did it make you feel to realise that this was now happening to you? It was just another opportunity, another challenge. (laughs) I've always enjoyed challenges and opportunities, and there are far worse illnesses than dementia. Mind you, people get very angry if I say that. But when you've been a doctor and you've seen people with motor neurone disease, for example, or Huntington's career and others, I think they're far worse conditions than dementia. We can't alter what happens to us, but we have a choice as to how we react to it. So I said to God, well, I have an opportunity here. What are we going to do with it? <laughs> but, okay, I, I can understand that you came to that point, but were there not no, times... I was there from the beginning. Really? So so when people laughed at you because you got lost, and when people were, were I don't want to say dismissive, but people didn't understand what was going on, how how... What's your take on that? What's your your understanding of that? Well, it was just lack of understanding and lack of education. And I was involved in medical education. It was one of my jobs, teaching doctors and nurses and medical students. So it was an opportunity to educate them. And if someone doesn't realise that they don't know, they need a situation in order to find out that they don't know. Mm. So when people didn't realise that there really was some difficulties, well, that was an opportunity for me then to enlighten them, wasn't educate them. So from your point of view, was there a difference between observing it as a GP and as a daughter? And then I think the phrase that you use in one of your videos on your website is you then are seeing it from the inside. What's the difference between observing it and then seeing it from the inside? It's quite different, and I've learned so much more. I think it gives you more authenticity and the ability to learn from other people who are willing to share their stories with you, (laughs) which probably they've never done properly before because they've also been laughed at or not believed, as I wasn't. Mm. And I understood that. So I was able to say, oh, I know what it's like when no one believes you and everyone laughs at you and so on. And then they would talk to me about their experiences. So I learned so much. So it was a real privilege to understand dementia from the inside, not only my own, but all the people that I was living amongst. Because once my husband realized how bad I was, (laughs) he couldn't cope with me not being able to run the house and cook and all that kind of stuff. So we moved very quickly to a dementia-inclusive community and that was where I met all these other people who amazingly, when I arrived, no one else had dementia. Yeah. But they saw that I wasn't ashamed of it. In fact, I was almost proud of it because of this idea of it being an opportunity. Yes. And it didn't take long before other people outed and it became almost like a club. It was lovely. It was wonderful. So I was just more grateful than I could ever have been. I could never have got there if I hadn't had it myself. Never. And, and it is... I suppose, a reflection on how society responds to it, that all those people felt that they had to pretend until you blazed the trail and said, no, actually, we don't need to pretend. We can be true. Yes, yes. 
And I talk quite openly about my hallucinations. Um, I always have. And I was surprised to find out that I reckoned at least 60% of people with dementia have hallucinations, but they weren't going to tell anybody. No, <laughs> no. In case people judged them or yeah. made assumptions yeah. about yeah. them. I mean, you've, you've me mentioned it a couple of times, this this attitude that you have, and as you say, there right from the beginning, where you say that dementia is an unexpected gift. Now, most people would see the threat of dementia as a curse. So I wonder if you could just unpack that unexpected gift element for us. Can you just explain to us what you mean by that? Well, I saw it as an opportunity again to experience myself what other people were going through. And then the privilege of walking the path with others and finding out what worked in helping them. Because as a doctor, I always wanted to people to live the best they could with what they had. So here was another situation in which to do that. Because if you've met someone with dementia, you've only met one person because everyone is different. Yes. And unfortunately, people get tired of the same brush. It's assumed that, you know, people say, well, I know all about dementia. You know, my mother or my father had dementia. Well, I'm delighted that you've learned something from that. I'm sorry you've had that experience. I'm delighted you've had opportunity. But that was just one person. And you probably won't find another person who had the same mm. experience. You see, I found out it's a wonderful tapestry. And I found that unusual things work if not with everybody, with a lot of people. And I would not have found that with just a few people. For example, the effects of laughter enable people to talk, people who are not, not able to talk. If you really got them laughing, one found that they could actually talk afterwards. And well, that was interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I've learned so much of God's goodness to me and the opportunity for me to show love and care to all these people around. I mean, they were all there on my doorstep. I mean, what a privilege. I was just so thrilled to have it. Um, and for many people, um, they were so pleased to meet someone that understood that um, and was able to accept them and value them as people. Yeah. And I just thought it was sad that so many people with dementia aren't valued in the way that they could be. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm talking today to Dr. Jennifer Butte. Jennifer lives with the reality of dementia. Her website, gloriousopportunity.org, is a treasure trove of resource that gives insight into the realities of dementia, what it's like to see it from the inside, what it's like to live with it, and what it's like to see those that you love live with it as well. I'm my guest today to explore the the impact of dementia. One of the things that you talk about, Jennifer, is that you say there are three basic principles to understanding those living with dementia. I wonder if you could tell us what they are. I found there were just three principles that apply to everyone with dementia. I have found no exceptions. The first there is always a reason for anything that someone with dementia says or does. It is not random. There's always a reason. And it's a bit like a detective thing. You have to try and find out what the reason is. Yeah. The second principle is almost the most important, is that feelings remain when the facts are forgotten. 
So even if we don't remember the facts of a situation, we will remember whether it was a happy situation or not. So that is worth remembering too, because it's much easier, I think, to leave good feelings behind, even if the rest of it didn't go so well. Mm. And the last principle is that patterns continue. The pattern of behavior we had as children, particularly when we couldn't cope with life, I discovered, and I haven't found any exceptions to it. And most people, of course, have no idea how their spouse has behaved as a child. But just as children behave in certain often unacceptable ways when they can't cope with life, one will find that the adult with dementia will behave in the way they behaved as a child. So when I told my family, there's my sisters, they said, oh, we all know what you do. And they were right. <laughs> I would go away and hide or cry in a corner. But other people might scream or yell or have a tantrum or throw things or bite or kick. But that is exactly what they will do if they can't cope. Almost. So the pattern of being unable to cope continues. So that's something worth remembering mm. because it just means the person needs help, doesn't it? It's the cry for help. And there's a there's a, a video on your website where you picking up on, on the one of those, which is the the idea that the emotions remain. You say that if you are with someone with dementia, how you leave them is really important because if you leave them in a state of heightened anxiety for whatever reason. They'll forget why they feel that, but they'll still feel that. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely right. So at the end of a visit, no matter how well or badly it's gone, you need to leave on a positive note. Mm. And for some people, it doesn't even mean saying goodbye because that can be upsetting. You might just say, I've got to go out to the car or I need to go somewhere. You don't need to tell a lie, but you don't actually have to make a big thing of saying goodbye but you've left them with happy feelings and they will remain even if they don't forget why they feel happy. So I think it takes a lot of stress of a lot of visiting. You make the point that it's important to remember that dementia is a physical condition and not just the case of getting old. I was fascinated by that point because there is a danger that we diminish the reality for someone if we don't acknowledge that there is a substantive cause for it, if we just put it down to, well, you know, all of us are getting older, happens to us all, dear. But it's not that simple, is it? No, but it's important because something can be done. In a sense, we can't help getting old. But if you get dementia, something can be done. You know, we can actually slow down the progression. I mean, nowadays, if someone has a stroke, most people understand that we expect the person to improve, if not get completely better. Well, the damage is still there in the brain. So why on earth not with dementia as well? We can't cure dementia, but we can certainly slow down the progression and make things better. What I talk about is getting on your sledge. You know, the sledge stands for... S-L-E-D-G-E, -E, and everything has to be done within the context of social engagement. A lot of people with dementia kind of hide away and cut off contact with people because they're ashamed, which is so sad. Mm. But they mustn't. They must keep socially engaged. So the L, of course, is laughter. 
because laughter releases endomorphins and makes people feel better anyway. The E is enjoyment and exercise. I mean, a lot of our teachers and lecturers used to walk up and down because it's a fact that our brains work better if we're walking up and down. The D is the daily activities, the routines, the patterns, the decent diet as well. And the G is a little bit of a cheat because I couldn't think of anything else. It's cognitive stimulation. <laughs> yes. Not the brain training. Brain training is getting better at the same thing, which is important and useful. Nothing wrong with that. But you need more than that. It's all to do with when we were kids, for example, we learned to read and write and do arithmetic, the three R's. That's how we were wired up as children yes. to learn. And the Japanese have found out that if they now get people with dementia to do reading, writing, and arithmetic in the same period of time, say over a period of half an hour, that will alert the brain that this is a learning opportunity. We need to form new neurons because there's amazing neuroplasticity in the brain. So I used to run memory groups called Japanese memory groups, nothing to do with the Japanese really, apart from the fact the Japanese discovered this. Yes. When we look at the, the fear that people have of dementia, one of the things that happens, of course, is that people shy away from what they perceive to be symptoms without ever really finding out whether or not they are. How do we know if it's dementia or if it's just you're getting a bit older and your memory isn't as good as it used to be? Well, officially, there are 10 main changes, and I've got a list of them here because I wouldn't remember them otherwise. <laughs> First is that the memory loss you have disrupts ordinary life. It's not a momentary lapse. In other words, you forget it's your son's birthday or you forget you're meant to go to the dentist, that kind of thing. Mm. The second is you get confused with time or place. You've no idea what the date is, what month it is, even how you got somewhere or whether you got lost. <laughs> I mean, that can happen even to familiar places. I mean, I got horribly lost once just meeting up with my family in Windsor Castle. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> And then the third problem is with speech and writing. I can't spell correctly anymore. And I find it difficult sometimes to talk. The evenings are worst. I forget words. I repeat myself. And I use the wrong words, which is quite funny at times. <laughs> My daughter, who did psychology at university, finds it fascinating. She says she still remembers when I said to her, that the, um, I can't remember what it was now, um, whether I said something like the shoehorns were out in the garden and I meant the foxgloves, you know, the it, it, and these words get filed in our brain and I picked the wrong ones off the shelf. I mean, mm -hmm. she knew exactly what I meant. So she finds it amusing. And then, of course, the fourth one is planning things is very difficult. Even cooking is a disaster. And I was so grateful to my family because, you know, I can remember cooking my son some rock buns and he took a bite of one when he arrived and put them straight in the bin. And I said, why would you do that? He said, well, you forgot to put the sugar in. <laughs> I said, well, I could have iced them. He said, you can't hide behind your diagnosis, mum. You've got to find a way around it. 
And I was so grateful to him because he challenged me all the time. And for me, that was the right thing. So that was good. And you talk but about, course, on in your videos, you talk about how you now, when you bake, you measure everything out, leave it all out on the bench, and then you know everything has gone in, rather than doing it the way I do it, which is just to grab the packet out of the cupboard when I want it. Yes, I'm afraid I don't even do that now. I'm getting dangerous, but still. But it's also, you see, you can, if you do internet sh shopping, I can remember ordering, I meant to order a packet of sprouts, and they sent me one sprout. Well, it's my fault, <laughs> of course, but you'd have thought they would have had more sense, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, do you have to laugh? And then the fifth thing is difficulty completing familiar tasks. Um, the rules of a game, for example, that you've played forever, you have no idea how to play it anymore. Um, people often who play bridge even, I don't, but some people do, and they just can't remember how to mm. do it. And getting lost, of course, driving, something that used to be familiar. The sixth is misplacing things. And this is very common. And people with dementia often accuse other people of stealing. <laughs> and sometimes I think, oh, no, Jennifer, no, no one's stolen it. <laughs> think. <laughs> but we can't see what's there in front of us sometimes. Or we've put it in the fridge instead of somewhere else. Yeah. Sometimes we need others to help us look for what is there, but we can't see it. It's our brain, not our eyes. The seventh is that some people get a lot of change in mood of personality. It depends often on the type of dementia. Um, but we get, all of us, I think, upset when we're out of our comfort zone. But I think we can relearn some things. The eighth is we avoid situations that we can't cope with anymore, even favorite sports, which is so sad. And it's something that I think families can often enable us to do. We don't have to stop going to things. We just need to be enabled to do it because there's no way we can do it by ourselves anymore. The ninth is we get poor judgment. And a very common thing with people with dementia is they give away or spend too much money and they don't realise. Yes. Um, it's something that the family needs to be aware of and to have arrangements with the bank to alert them if things are not going well. Um, and some people then forget to look after their self-care. I mean, I have on my computer because I'm computer literate. Trains me, you know, when to change my bed or when to yeah. wash my hair, things like that, because I can't remember otherwise. And then the last one is visual spatial images. And that's certainly true. Quite a few people I know actually found out they had dementia because they were completely unable to drive their car into the garage anymore. They would bump against the wall each mm. time. Because they hadn't, I mean, that's how Terry Pratchett apparently found out he had dementia. And our reflexes are slower, so driving becomes very dangerous because we don't remember yeah. in time things. And then difficulty with reading. I used to read a lot and I can't easily, but it doesn't matter. I listen to it instead. And and one of the interesting things for me listening to and, and watching the, some of the resources and videos that you've done, you talk about this, the way in which perception of sight can be affected by dementia. Now, I had never heard this before in all the years that I've been talking about this, Jennifer. I had never come across this before at all. But it makes such sense that actually... The way that sight works, not in that there's a problem with the eyes, but the way that the brain interprets the image actually creates some of the things that people with dementia get criticised for, like 
putting your food on the table instead of on the plate. Can you explain that to us, please? Yes. Well, I can remember when my family member told me that a cousin who had dementia came to visit her and how she put the jam on the tablecloth. And I said, oh, yes, you had a white tablecloth, didn't you? Yes. And you had your best white tea service out? Yes. Well, I said she didn't know where the plate finished and the cloth began. Yeah. We need contrast. It's not the colour. It's the contrast between the colour. And it's the same often, particularly for men in the bathroom, putting it bluntly. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's nothing to do with what you want to do or can't do. It's the contrast you need. So um, if you've got a light-coloured bathroom floor and you've got light-coloured toilet, then there's yeah. every likelihood he'll miss. Exactly. Yes, yes. And you, you see, I, I think that is, is something that is so, once it's explained, it is so obvious. Like somebody said to me, if you've got stone tiles, don't put black mats down because it looks like a hole in the ground. It, it, it just We just never actually stop and think about these things. One of the things that you make very clear is that there is an awful lot can be done to bring hope and purpose for people living with dementia. You talk about how technology can help. How, how have you discovered that technology can improve things? Well, I have Alexa. And to me, it's made all the difference. You know, I can ask what the time is and what the date is and you know, when the clocks change and play me some music or anything I like. And for me, it's made a tremendous difference to me. It really has transformed my life. And people can have watches that tell the time or radios that have their, you know, their favorite programs on them. Clothes that are reversible or you can wear them inside out or back to front. <laughs> It's just amazing what there is. I mean, it's not exactly technology, but it's part of the same thing, yes, isn't yes. it? And I'm so grateful. And there's an awful lot in the pipeline now as well about warning people. I know, I think it's it's in the public domain already. There are, there are socks being developed, which people with dementia will wear, and they will pick up the socks, believe it or not, when the person is about to have a meltdown and not be able to cope. And it will send the message to the carer to tell them what to do. Right. They'll yeah. say, your mum, for example, needs a cup of tea or your dad needs to go for a walk or whatever. So it's not just warning people about the problem, but also telling them what to do about it, which will be specific for that purpose. So there's a tremendous amount in the pipeline, you know, apart from obvious ro robots and things like that. But it's not just about technology, is it? Because it's also about techniques and ways of approaching things. You talk about accessing memories and you make the point that very often we assume that the person with dementia no longer has the memory. But, well, you say dementia is like being in a house where the front door is locked and the key is lost. So how can I help someone who is stuck in that house, Jennifer? <laughs> well, I often ask people, what would you do if you went around to have a cup of coffee with someone and rang the doorbell and they didn't answer? Sadly, some people say they would just go home. 
And that sadly is what a lot of people with dementia do. They say, well, there's no point talking to you today. You obviously don't know anything. Mm. It's not true. And if you really wanted to go and visit someone and you couldn't get a reply from the door, if you were concerned about the person, you would wonder, have they fallen down? Have they hurt themselves? You know, you'd look through the letterbox, you'd go around to the back door, you'd look in through the window, you might get a ladder. So fig figuratively, we need to do the same thing for the person. We need to find another way of letting them know that we care, finding another way to access that memory. And I found out for myself that the same memory might not exist. I mean, for example, my sister said something about her cat. And I said, you've never had a cat in your life. I have, she said, I've always had a cat. No, you haven't, I said. So my sister had another understanding not to argue with me. And then she started talking about her son's cat. Mm. So I said, oh, yes, your son had a cat. And afterwards I said, oh, yes, yes, I remember you had a cat. So it reached the memory by a different, different route. Yes. By her son cat's memory rather than her cat's memory. So the memory is still there. We just have to find another way of accessing it. A different trigger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you talk about some of the strategies that you use in connecting with people and you use them not just for yourself, but also in how you connect with others. And I wondered if we could explore some examples. And there, there is a, a place in one of the videos where you talk about how you talk to someone who is not using, if I might put the term, clear words in their vocalization. They are talking gobbledygook. And yet, as you started to listen and engage with that, even though it sounded like nonsense, they were able to be connected with. Yes, well, there are seven different ways I've now discovered to enable someone to talk. And it's one of my specialties, I think, now. If someone says, oh, so-and-so is not talking anymore, I think, let me see what I can do. <laughs> And it's, it's so exciting to be able to enable them to talk. And the sad thing is so many people just don't bother. They assume the person is stuck. But if you're playing a gramophone even and the needle gets stuck, you don't just let it get stuck all the time. You do something about it, don't mm. you? You move the needle. So why not with a person who's having difficulty talking? So is someone talking... Um, gobbledygook, I mean, that's one of the most difficult ones to, to do, but you have to talk with the same emotional cadence that they're using. If they're very excited about something, they might be so excited that they can't talk sense, but you can tell they're excited. And if you've got a vague idea what it's about, then you can start talking very excitedly in exactly the same way about the subject that you assume that they are also wanting to talk about. And people with dementia, we copy each other. We're like mirrors. So I'm copying their emotion. And of course, feelings matter. So they will then start copying some of the words I'm using. So I try and copy some of the words they're using. And any word that I can use in my conversation that they're using, I will use. And they will slowly do the same thing. I can remember doing this with one lady in a minibus that we were traveling on and everyone else thought I was daft. And I said, wait and see. And after about 10 minutes, the lady who had been talking gobbledygook spoke two 
normal sentences that everybody can talk could understand. Amazing. So it is possible yes. to do it. Yes. You also talk about the importance of picking up the meaning behind the questions. And and when you talked about the three basic principles for people with dementia, you said there is a reason, there is a meaning behind everything. One of the most common examples and experiences people have of dementia is people asking for the same thing over and over again. I want to go home, for example. And you very clearly pick up on, actually, that doesn't necessarily mean they want to go back to the house they grew up in. Can you explain that to us? Yes, it's the meaning behind the question, isn't it? So if someone says to me they want to go home, and I know they're living in a place where it's meant to be their home, I would say to them, well, what's special about home? You know, why is home so special to you? There's no point using logic and saying, well, you are home or you can't go home. So they would then start talking about home and you'd get to understand, was it the security, the familiarity, someone being there to welcome them? So you would learn something about them in a way that helped you then to make them feel more at home where they were. And, you know, someone asked what the time is. Well, they really want, we couldn't care to who is what the time is. But the only reason we ever want to know what the time is because we don't know what we're meant to be doing or we might be meant to be somewhere. So if I ask what's the time, it just means what am I meant to be doing now? And if I want to see my mummy and mummy is dead, there's no point saying, well, you can't because she's dead. You say, well, tell me about your mummy. You know, what? how did she make you feel? And then you learn from that experience and try and then provide that feeling in some other way. And that applies, that idea of there is a meaning, there is a reason, that applies as well to things that, well, people talk about abnormal behaviour, don't they, when you live with dementia. And, and understanding what's driving that and maybe what's driving the anxiety of that is absolutely critical, isn't it? Yes, and it can be so different. So I'm still learning. For example, there's a lady here who I had found out that she had a problem with her type of dementia of not being able to feel things that are in her hand for example, I gave her a flower to put in a vase and I put the flower in her hand and she just dropped it. And I knew she hadn't had a stroke. But if I put the flower in front of her eye so she could see it, then she could take hold of the flower and put it in the vase. And the other day I saw her sitting at breakfast with her toast and the butter on the side and she was just sitting there. And I knew exactly what the problem was. I went up to her and I said, oh, you've got some lovely hot toast. Yes. I said, well, you need some butter on it, don't you? I haven't got any. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because she couldn't see it. I mm. mean, it was there, but she she could see it, but she couldn't relate it to the toast. So all I had to do was to pick up a bit of butter and put it into her hand in front of her face so she could see it, which was wonderful. Because then, of course, she could deal with it. Yes. And then if you have hallucinations, um, that can be very frightening. I can remember... Again, another lady, they had a dog, and I find dogs quite difficult for various reasons. 
I mean, being attacked by them. My children are being attacked. And I'd been having hallucinations that I'd been attacked by a dog. And I was talking to people about it because I found if I talked to people about my hallucinations, they would talk to me about theirs. And I was talking to a lady with dementia and her husband and her daughter. And her daughter said, well, my mother doesn't have hallucinations. So I said, well, what does your mother have to say about that? Yes, I do. Yeah. So I said, oh, really? And are they to do with dogs as well? Yes. No, says the daughter. She has a dog. She doesn't have hallucinations. She doesn't need to have. And the husband said, ah, that makes sense. Why she gets so terrified if I take the dog out for a walk and leave her behind? Because she assumed that the dog would be her guard dog against her hallucinations. Right, yes, yes. But the family had no idea. Yeah. It made sense of that, her terrifying behavior, which... <laughs> but they hadn't understood. But there's so often... There is a real ways. need for us to take time to learn this stuff, isn't there? Because more and more people are living with dementia and all these things, you know them, not just because you are living with it, but because you are stopping and listening to what people say. Yes. It's such a privilege and opportunity to learn all the time because everyone is different, yeah. I wonder if before we sort of move into our final section of this conversation... There's a, a piece where you talk about how we should approach people with dementia and not come up behind them and tap them on the shoulder, but rather come from the front so that they can see what's coming and have time to process the information. Yes, that's very important because I've seen some disasters when someone's been tapped on the back and they think they're being attacked. Um, people need to see you. And because of these problems with vision, it's no good in the, on the side. They need to be seen straight in front of them. But they don't want someone towering over them. You know, they want someone at their eye level. Um, and it makes such a difference, yes. you know, the way we approach. I always like telling the story about a lady I saw once. I was called to sort out a lady that was causing trouble in a, a community situation. And I'd never met her before. I knew nothing about her. But if you understand the principles, it doesn't matter. And I was taken into this poor lady who was flinging her arms around and shouting and obviously terrified. And everyone was standing around her, waving their fingers at her and shouting it back at her. So I immediately told everyone to go away. So she was a bit surprised. And then I knelt down on the floor in front of her which was the complete opposite to what everyone else had been doing, yes. which was standing over her. So she stopped shouting and looked down at me with great surprise. I didn't know this lady's name. I didn't know what the problem was or anything. So I smiled at her and she gave me a little smile back. And I said, oh, what a lovely smile you've got. Well, she was amazed because everyone else had been turning her off. Yes. So she smiled even more. I said, oh, that's lovely. And then I took her hand once I realized that she felt okay with me. And I said, thank you. Thank you for making my day. And she sat up like the queen, <laughs> you know, as if I'd made her day, really had made her day as well. Yes. 
well, why had she made my day? Because she had calmed down. Yeah. I never knew what the reason was that had upset her. And the staff said to me later, what did you do to shut her up? I didn't. I said, I said nothing to shut her up. I made her feel that someone cared about her and that she had value. You talk about people with dementia becoming more spiritually aware. You talk about the Bible meaning more to you now from the perspective of dementia. Why is that? Well, I think for many older people, they got used to going to Sunday schools or school assemblies, and Scripture is quite well known to a lot of people, even if they don't go to church now. But I found for myself that Scripture means things which I were there all the time, but I hadn't noticed. For example, with my hallucinations of wild animals and people being very rude, there's that wonderful passage in Isaiah 35 which says, there will be a highway where no one rude will be allowed. It'll be impossible to get lost on this road. No dangerous wild animals, nothing and no one dangerous or threatening. And God will welcome you home with gifts of joy and gladness. And I thought, wow, that could have been written for me. Wonderful. And I've never seen that before. Yes. And just one other from the New Testament. As dementia progresses, our speech can become difficult. um, And we can live in a fog. But in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love never dies. Speech will be over one day. We don't see things clearly. We're in a fog. Until then, until the sun shines and we see clearly, we have just three things to do. Trust in God, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly. Yes. Wonderful. It's been fascinating to talk to you today, Jennifer, and to get the insight of someone seeing dementia from the inside rather than just observing it in others. A point that you make over and over again is the point where I'd like us to finish because you say it is essential that those around people who have dementia need to understand the importance of enabling not disabling. I wonder if you could just share for us your thoughts on that and why it is so important. Well, I think it's because it gives us a feeling of worth and value if we're enabled to do something. Um, I think that's important too, rather than giving up and sitting in a corner and feeling sorry for oneself. But sometimes I like to think, if we're finishing a session, I like to think that kinsikuroi is almost a better way to finish, isn't it? You know, kinsikuroi is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery. And so many people with disability or dementia, anything, you know, feel broken and damaged. And in kinsikuroi, they put gold and silver into the cracks Mm. to make it look more beautiful and of greater value than before. And I think, but this is just such a wonderful analogy, isn't it? That people who pour love and care into other people's lives and the lives of those with dementia, they are actually making them feel more valuable and giving them worth in a way that they didn't have before because nothing is wasted at all in God's economy. Here is the reality. More and more of us will develop dementia. 
It is a growing reality, problem, Jennifer might say opportunity within society. It is absolutely essential that we start to understand that just because someone has dementia, it does not mean it is the end of that person. And though they may not appear to be the person they always were, and though the relationships might change and the perspectives might change, the intrinsic value of that person is something that needs to continue to be explored, engaged with, connected with, and developed. And all of us will be the richer if we can do that. I want to heartily recommend to you Jennifer's website, gloriousopportunity.org. Her insights into the reality of living with dementia are astounding. I have had my eyes opened by them. And her passion to see God in her life as she lives with dementia is an inspiration to all of us. Gloriousopportunity.org is the website. Have a look at it for yourself. Dr. Jennifer Butte, it's been lovely to speak to you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm Paul Hammond. This is Life Issues. Why not join me next week for another one? Ta-da. <laughs>